research that resonates. Schweitzer has not been wrong on any of his years and years of reporting on the Bidens. Investigations that matter. If your last name wasn't Biden, do you think you would have been asked to be on the board of Burisma? I don't know. I don't know. Probably not. But that's, you know, I, I don't think that there's a lot of things that would have happened in my life that, uh, that if my last name wasn't Biden. The only entities, the only people that would report on this, and Peter Schweitzer, who deserves a Medal of Freedom, in my view, This is The Drill Down with Peter Schweitzer. Hi, this is Peter Schweitzer, and welcome to The Drill Down, where we relentlessly expose cronyism, corruption, and the abuse of power in Washington, D.C. The co-host of this program, as always, Eric Eggers. Eric, how are you? I'm okay. I'm feeling a little insecure because I've always identified myself as having a big intellect. But then once I read this book, Big Intel, I know what actual big intel looks like. (laughs) It is. We're going to talk about a very interesting subject today, and that is corruption within our intelligence communities. Uh, A great book out called Big Intel how the CIA and FBI went from Cold War heroes to deep state villains. The author of this book, uh, J. Michael Waller, I highly recommend the book. Uh, I've known Mike since college, and I have to say, reading this book is kind of shocking on a couple of levels. First of all, I knew Mike as a student. I knew him as a scholar and as a practitioner. Little did I know until I read this book the actual work he was doing for the CIA, uh, the contact he had with some very, very interesting people in the intelligence world. Um, and so we're going to talk about uh, his background and experience in this area. But we also want to talk about this larger issue that he exposes, and that is how the deep state really took over the intelligence community. I'd also love it if Mr. Uh, Waller would tell us some stories about Peter Schweitzer in college. <laughs> and if no. it's true, actually, that he's basically been a cultivated asset of yours for the last four decades. <laughs> That's sort of my takeaway from this conversation. (laughs) Well, uh, please, Mike, don't go there. I'll write you a check. Okay, I'll write you a check. But seriously, Mike, it's it's great to see you. I'm going to just read a little bit of your bio so the audience knows about your experience. It's very long, very extensive. He's a senior analyst at uh, the uh, Center for uh, Security Policy in Washington, D.C. For 13 years, he was the Annenberg Chair of International Communications at a Graduate School of Statecraft in Washington, D.C., He's lectured everywhere. I mean, he's lectured for the Green Berets. He's lectured for the FBI. Uh, He's written incredible books. He's an expert in psychological warfare, political manipulation, um, and anything that he reads is very worthwhile. But Mike, thanks for the book and thanks for joining us on the program. Well, thanks for having me on, Peter. Right. Well, so let's talk. Let's talk about this, this, your history that, again, I did not know. I mean, I thought I knew you pretty well, but it turns out as a very young man, you actually were working for the CIA. I knew you were doing work in Central America and you were not just working for the CIA. You were actually working for the director of the CIA, Bill Casey. So can you tell us a little bit about your background? You're not just a scholar, but you're a practitioner in a lot of respects in this area. Well, it's kind of funny to be talking to you about it, Peter. First, I haven't said anything to anybody until writing the book, and that was just to make sure that the, the most people involved were either okay with talking about it or were, were deceased. Yeah, it started out actually when I knew you first in college uh, with Young Americans for Freedom, where I was the, the, uh, the D.C. YAF chairman and working at College Republican National Committee and was interested in, in international affairs. So by default, I became the youth the unofficial youth coordinator for the White House on getting Reagan's anti-Soviet message out to American college campuses. As part of that, and quite differently from it, though, 
someone at the White House put me in touch with Constantine Menges, who was the CIA man in charge of Western Hemisphere policy for Reagan, and he was working directly for Bill Casey or reporting directly to him. <clears throat> and he said, uh, yeah, I'll get you down to Central America as a student journalist. So I did. And um, and uh, the purpose was to to uh, collect intelligence where the CIA was not collecting intelligence. So this was the same where the CIA could not produce information showing that the Soviets were behind international terrorism. So Casey needed to use parallel networks of journalists and scholars to do that. But as he had done when he was in the OSS and when General Singlov was in the OSS, had a bunch of amateurs who didn't know what they were doing, really didn't have the good sense to not do dumb things. Uh, he had revived that kind of thing to to recruit younger people to work for him out of his pocket. So not working for the CIA as an employee to go collect the intelligence that was needed to allow President Reagan to state his case about the Soviet Union being behind these international communist movements. And you traveled to Central America, right? I mean, I, I remember you met with the Contras, you traveled into Nicaragua, or you were in El Salvador. So you were sort of boots on the ground uh, and you were providing that information. What was your reaction at the time to the to the agency? And, and, and I know you really were dealing with Casey and with Constantine Mengus, but what was your sense of the agency at that time? I had no contact at all with anybody from the agency. Uh, either in Washington or on the ground, aside from Constantine. So it was, I could see what they had done in terms of helping the Nicaraguan resistance. These were the anti-communist guerrillas, a peasant army that was, that started on its own to fight uh, the communist takeover of their country. And then the, the CIA came in under Reagan and Casey to set up, set them up and help professionalize them more and get them more better equipment. So I could see what the CIA had done there on the covert operations side, and they really did a great job. Uh, it sounds like the CIA has a slightly different mission now to hear you talk about it in your book. And uh, the CIA and the FBI, um, as you describe, have become agents of social change. And I think you do an excellent job of connecting the dots of how that mission came to be with the Obama administration. And I'm kind of curious because you have a background. You, you've written a book. Um, you you mentioned that you collected all this old KGB material and it went, went into a book that you used to – be called Secret Empire, which, of course, Peter Schweitzer then stole the title of that for his book uh, five or six years ago. <laughs> became his best. His I, was, first, I was 20 years behind my It became typical. It became his first number one. So I'm just saying he may owe you some money. Um, but but I was struck by you do an awesome job of connecting the dots between the 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 Russian mindset and cultural Marxism and how it's actually infiltrated into America's intelligence agencies today. You know, I'm reminded of the uh, quote during the Mitt Romney, Barack Obama debate when Mitt Romney starts talking about Russia as a threat and Barack Obama says, hey, the 80s called. They want their foreign policy back. I mean, it, it's it sounds different when you think about the influence the Russian and Marxist mindset had and how that's actually impacted America's intelligence today in a way that's actually sort of a threat. So can you sort of just trace? I know it's a long way of setting you up, but what is the threat that faces America's national intelligence agencies today and what does the Obama administration and Marxism have to do with it? First, we need a very strong intelligence service without peer. Because we're the number one target of all the bad guys around the world. So we need that for our own freedom, to preserve our own freedom. We need the best counterintelligence services in the world because we're the biggest targets of foreign spy services. So we need 
something that does the functions that the FBI is supposed to do. And the only way for a foreign power ever to conquer us is not by invading us, but conquering how we think, how we perceive the world, how we perceive ourselves. So think of it, the ultimate Soviet active measure or the ultimate covert operation of any kind would be to get Americans to stop believing in themselves as a country, to think the American founding is evil, to think that everything to do with what America is all about is evil and oppressive, all the way down to to Judeo-Christian values and the nuclear family and and everything else we hold dear. Once we stop believing in that, we're easy pickings for hostile powers. So now imagine transferring that mentality through popular culture, through journalism, through academia, into the universities that educate our lawyers, our prosecutors, our federal investigators, our intelligence officers and counterintelligence officers. So a whole couple generations come into the system where they don't believe in those values anymore. So what are they protecting? And this is where we get something like big intel, where it ceases to serve the interests of the United States Constitution and its founding principles and becomes a state within a state. Yeah, here's what's so powerful, I think, about the book, and, and I want you to elaborate on. When, when people think of foreign infiltration, they typically think, Mike, uh, that, that, okay, you know, uh, the Chinese CCP is going to influence the policy positions or they're going to have spies internal to the CIA that is going to shape American intel in that way. What you're talking about is cultural. I mean, in other words, if you can actually influence the way in which people are hired, the people that are hired, the mindset of the people that are running the bureaucracy, that's far more powerful than getting them to soften their position on Taiwan. So talk about that. And you've got some really interesting examples, uh, Robert Mueller and other some of the people that they're quoting um, and and the origins of that as it relates to the Frankfurt School. Talk about the cultural influence that they've had in shaping where where big intel is going. It starts out with what what uh, what's called cultural Marxism. And if if you go to not that Wikipedia is a credible place to go, but it's a good cheat sheet. But if you look it up, what they used to have a cultural Marxism page. Now it says cultural Marxism conspiracy theory. <laughs> so, so everything that Karl Marx wrote about cultural Marxism and all of his successors is really a right-wing conspiracy theory, and we shouldn't believe any of it. I mean, this is some of the gaslighting that goes on. But if you, we all think of Karl Marx as this this crazed economist who's pitting the toiling masses of the proletariat uh, against the wealthy few and the bourgeoisie, and that's the that's the dialectic right there. But that was the 1848 Karl Marx who wrote when he wrote the Communist Manifesto. But five years earlier, Karl Marx was a cultural warrior. And his view in Germany uh, was to destroy the sense of nationhood, destroy the sense of culture, destroy all the great things that German culture had produced, destroy Judeo-Christian values. Marx was born a Jew, raised a Christian, so he knew about Judeo-Christian values. He just twisted everything because he resented everything. And, and then destroy the nuclear family and turn culture as a weapon against itself. So that was the original Karl Marx. The Bolsheviks revived that after their revolution, where it was a violent revolution. And they said, 
The European countries aren't ready. The workers are too well-paid and too well-treated to have an armed revolution. Let's try something new. So just over 100 years ago, in 1922, the head of the heads of the Communist International, which was the Soviet network of communist parties and movements around the world under Soviet control, and the head of the founder of the KGB, Felix Jasinski, they got together to create in Germany, so this was right after World War I and before Hitler's rise, uh, what became the Frankfurt School. It was a school in Frankfurt, Germany, that was set up to destroy culture from within, polarize society, tear out the center, and then finally take it over. The thing is that Hitler beat them to it. So what happened to all of these intellectuals? Many of them moved to America. They set up shop at Columbia University with a teacher's college to teach the teachers. They built an alliance with the head of the National Education Association, the NEA Teachers Union, brought him to the Soviet Union where he wrote a a six-part series in New Republic about how great Stalin's education system was. This was the founder of today's big teachers union (laughs) that got Jimmy Carter to create the Department of Education, which was what? To centralize education in the United States. So this all began in the 1930s in the 1920s in Europe, in the 1930s here, and then it permeated our education system ever since. So you have now this teaching of cultural Marxism, where most people have no idea that it's cultural Marxism at all. They just think it's normal. And and so what you're saying in the book essentially is that that created the fertile ground by which the people that started to populate and lead our intelligence community start thinking like cultural Marxists, and they act like cultural Marxists in terms of hiring practices, the way that we're going to see the world, guilt about, you know, America's uh, uh, economic success, etc. Talk about the specifics of how this is actually infected. Cultural Marxism has actually infiltrated and affected the intelligence community in the United States. Sure. Well, it did it from the very beginning. So we had no wartime intelligence service before World War II. We had no real intelligence service at all. So so President Roosevelt set up the Office of Strategic Services, which was a brilliant, you know, seat of the pants, bootstrapped operation to fight the Nazis and our, our other Axis enemies. But it was full of communists, Soviet Party, Communist Party agents, U.S. Communist Party members people under Soviet control or influence who thought this same way. And they were looking at how to shape American war policy so that by the end of World War II, Stalin would emerge victorious over the rest of us. They then used their intelligence credentials to become academics and professors and respected heroes of World War II, one of them being Herbert Marcuse, who became then one of the, he he took the new left, which was just a crazy bunch of, of, upset, you know, younger radicals in the early 60s. And he gave them theory. He gave them philosophy. He gave them a blueprint to move ahead to carry on cultural Marxism. He created, he, he elaborated critical race theory, but even more importantly, critical law theory, which is the same as BLM, but is applied to the law, not racial. And this is where it crept in to our system to, to, to get to your point. So they, they started going in and getting hired into the intelligence community started in the private sector, but they set up cell groups like the old Communist Party cell groups. But these are identity cell groups, racial, uh, ethnic, um, uh, gender, whatever other grievance or identity that they had. And they 
broke compartmentation within the compartmented intelligence community, meaning things are compartmented so that secrets can't leak out, you know, to, to the detriment of the United States. So these cell groups in the CIA, they were called ARGs. In the Justice Department, they were called ERGs and elsewhere, employee resource groups. But they operated horizontally as these horizontal networks, meaning without a centralized control. So they were brought in at the lower level. They'd rise to mid-management. So by the time the intelligence community is centralized under George W. Bush after 9-11 in a time of national emergency, it was teed up so that when the proper leaders came in who embraced critical race theory, cultural Marxism, they were brought in at the top. They could reach down into the bureaucracy and bring up these members of these cell groups to run the nervous, the central nervous system of the CIA and the Justice Department and the FBI to make it so that now the small numbers of those radicals control the entire apparatus, control the promotions system, control the training system, basically told the director what to do. So you get Chris Ray, who, who he's not a strong director. He just gets pushed around by these radicals and who are now in the top management positions and pretty much does what they want him to do. So this is how they take over organizations. And you detail in your book how on August 18th, 2011, an executive order was issued by the Obama administration, by Barack Obama specifically, that established a coordinated government-wide initiative to promote diversity and inclusion in the federal workforce. Do you think it's a coincidence that that happened three months after Osama bin Laden was killed? You, you mentioned that there was a, a victory lap for the intelligence community after Obama, after bin Laden had been captured. Um, do you see a, a connection between the timing of that and then how devastating has the impact of this executive order been, in your opinion? I'm not sure about a cause and effect between getting rid of bin Laden and this, although there could have been because you needed to have a, a real focus to get rid of bin Laden and you couldn't have, you know, lunatics with purple hair and, and, and you know, whatever <laughs> gender stuff, uh, you know, running these things. You really needed professionals doing the work and running it. But it was planned for a long time. If you look at the, the best presidents come into office, meaning the best, meaning the ones who who are most able to impose their agendas, whether you like them or not. So really the best would be Ronald Reagan. When he came in in 1981, he had a really well put together transition team with a long agenda that was put together by political allies. So he knew exactly what to do in each government department. And that's what made Bill Casey such an success, such a success in the CIA. Bill Clinton did something similar. Barack Obama did something similar. Um, some of the, the other presidents really did not. So when Obama came in, if you look, as with Biden, the very first days of his presidency, he just had executive order after executive order that were transformational in nature. So just as Obama said he would fundamentally transform America, he really meant it. And he came in with the executive orders. These are presidential decrees, essentially, that are they're constitutional. It's what a president needs to do to, to be able to govern. So he had them pre-written before he became president with the people already chosen to execute them. So this August 2011 executive order, now he'd been president for two and a half years. He had already been working up to that point. But by the summer of 2011, his whole national security team, which was really quite moderate and, and bipartisan, was now changing. And the moderates and even liberals like CIA director Leon Panetta moved on. And then the the um, 
real revolutionaries were put in their place. So, Mike, on a practical level, uh, you have several stories as how this relates to the actual policy of the intelligence community. One of the stories you tell uh, relates to your efforts to be working with the FBI uh, on sort of post 9-11 policy. And apparently, as you report, they did not want to use the word jihadist because they felt somehow that this was going to be culturally offensive, can you, which is, of course, what they call themselves. But can you tell that story? Give us some uh, other examples of how this actually manifests itself in the way that they talk about the threats that are facing us and view the threats that are facing us through this lens of cult- cultural Marxism that's now shaping our intelligence community. This was the first personal uh, experience that I had had with the FBI to see this type of fanaticism, ideologically driven fanaticism where you, where facts were no longer facts. And so you couldn't use words because they would offend. Now it's okay to do any nasty thing you want to a jihadist, but don't call him a jihadist because that might offend him. (laughs) (laughs) So, so it, and it was honestly what it was. So imagine FBI director Mueller. So he, he was only on the job for a week until 9-11 hit. And then President Bush said to him, you are going to make sure that the FBI makes sure that no other American is going to be harmed by terrorists in this country again. Well, that's a job that the FBI was never set up to do, to have this blanket, you know, quote, safety net in the United States to go for pre-crime activity. That meant reverting the FBI back to become a domestic intelligence service with police powers. And the intent was to go and spy on the jihadists, especially the foreign-born jihadists who were here and wanting to cause trouble. So, But few in the FBI had had any training in, well, what's a jihadist? How do you recognize it? How can you tell by, should we just spy on all the mosques? It's actually, well, no, most of the mosques are fine, but there are some that are run by groups like the Muslim Brotherhood that have the same end game as Al-Qaeda. Let's pay attention to those. And then which imams are not really clergy. They're actually terrorists in, in, in clergy garb, you know, preaching. How do you recognize them? What, what are their buzzwords? So we brought in a lot of subject matter experts, most of whom were Muslim, who knew you know, they, they memorized the Quran. They just weren't terrorists <laughs> right. and they just didn't want right. to overthrow our country. So they were the guideposts. So we set up a, uh, a training program for the FBI at Quantico at the FBI Academy. I was just an instructor in it. I had a module, but I was part of that team. And it ran for a couple of years and FBI Director Mueller gave us all a nice certificate of the great for the great work we did and then shut us down. Hmm. Hmm. And then allowed the it's, Muslim Brotherhood people to come in. And start a new training program for the FBI. <laughs> well, I was going to say, it's interesting to think that this that the FBI and the intelligence communities essentially became supersized because of the attacks by Al-Qaeda. And they started doing just more proactive work. And they built this essentially a machine. And then that machine gets taken over by a guy named Barack Obama, who was raised in Indonesia by cultural Marxists and has these kind of Islamic, you know, cultural ties to it. It's quite fascinating. You mentioned that uh, you were part of the module to help look for al-qaeda you mentioned in your book though that the lack of success in identifying and arresting members of al-qaeda is actually what led to maybe at least a shift in focus and they started pursuing more domestic terrorists is that right 
Yeah. So the, the when imagine if the FBI counterintelligence program against the Soviets was to have not people who knew about the Soviets but thought they were really bad and had to be taken down, but who were actually KGB agents come in and believing <laughs> communists come in to teach the FBI how to think about the KGB and communists. <laughs> so that's literally what the FBI did around 2006 <laughs> to understand Islam. They brought in jihadists with the Muslim Brotherhood. Now, the Muslim Brotherhood is really right. smart. They, they operate legally in the United States so that they won't be repressed, so that they won't be rounded up, so they won't be spied on. But to get an idea of who the Muslim Brotherhood is in real life, take a look at Hamas. That's the Palestinian branch of the Muslim Brotherhood. So take a look at the protests here in solidarity with Hamas. Those are run by the Muslim Brotherhood here in in a coalition with their Marxist allies from the old left and new left here. So so you've got this thing in the – so if you have the jihadists teaching the FBI about how to think of the enemy, it's not just these – innocent jihadis who are so, are so offended with the name it's the white bigots who hate them and those right. are where the hate right. crimes are and this is not about <laughs> terrorism it's about violent extremism because these people are haters and they need to be watched and 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 taken down and so that's the fbi's new mission so and and they're also i think incentivized right they want to run up the numbers right it's part part of it is the cultural marxism that you said that's the the motivating factor but part of it too is they need to have threat assessments that have lots of threats so you need to broaden the definition of domestic terrorists to include you know staunch catholics you know uh second amendment gun right advocates angry parents yeah angry parents none of these actually meet, yeah. meet the definition of a domestic terrorist but there's kind of a numbers game now i want to get to this story it's a great story in your book going getting back to the personal element and and again i highly recommend this book to our audience big intel it just came out you're going to very much enjoy um reading it but in addition to this work you were doing for the CIA director uh, as a young man, you wrote this book called Secret Empire. Great title. Um, and <laughs> and um, you had a, a fan that loved this book who happened to be a senior FBI official whose name was Bob. Tell us about Bob, your interactions with Bob, his interest in your book and who Bob actually ended up being. And was all along. Yes. Yeah, so yeah, yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> Imagine being, a, so I was a doctoral student uh, at, um, at Boston University during the Soviet collapse and right after the Soviet collapse. And I was writing my dissertation on the Soviet KGB and then the Soviet Union collapses. So then what has happened to the Soviet KGB? So I went over to Moscow. Was, I was in the Kremlin the day the Soviet Union was abolished, which was mm. a really exciting time when Boris yeah. Nelson and Ukraine and Belarus all seceded from the USSR. And uh, it was a, it was neat. But then what happens? Um, I, I had made friends with Russian journalists and human rights people and political people. And some of them were ransacking KGB offices. And then there were some KGB people who were just afraid, okay, they're going to get dragged out in the streets and beaten to death or whatever. Give the, give the protesters what they want. So we were gathering up bags full of KGB documents and training manuals and operational manuals and all kinds of things. And I was collecting these things over the next couple of years. Went to Lubyanka, was one of the only Americans in there, got to meet a whole lot of senior people from the old KGB. And then the uh, 
revived KGB, wrote a dissertation that came out in 94 and nobody, and it was a scholarly piece. Uh, mm-hmm. Nobody in the FBI expressed any interest until one day I was contacted by a senior counterintelligence agent named Bob. And he, he expressed intense interest in this book and he wanted to know, you know, all the details about everything. He was, he had a genuine professional and personal curiosity in, in certain KGB officials and what, what did it look like in there? What was, you know, what was everything like? And he was really, really, really extraordinary, well-informed. So I was excited, you know, brand new, brand new degree, brand new academic book. And I was excited to put this in the service of the FBI. So I worked with Bob, um, not, not as an agent, but as a journalist where you bounce ideas off people inside the system to see, am I, am I, am I, you know, headed in the right direction or not? And, but Bob was providing me with really highly classified material, which I never (laughs) do, but it's like really wild stuff that, that, it didn't have to have markings on it to know that I have no business seeing this. And I said to him, why are you giving me this stuff? He said, I want to see, I want to see if I can trust you. And I want you to know how hard it is to keep secrets. (laughs) Okay, fine. Um, And then one day I, I, I heard on the radio that Bob Hansen had been arrested as a Russian spy. (laughs) Oops! Same guy. Yeah, same guy. <laughs> so, what? What? Just out of curiosity, I mean, do you think that he was? Um, his interest in your dissertation was he was wondering if if there potentially was awareness of him and the fact that he'd been spying, or was it just curiosity? What do you think his motivation was for reaching out to you? I think he was interested because he he didn't know anyone else, any other American, at least who had been inside KGB headquarters and who had met these KGB generals and who got to know, you know, as much about the KGB at the time as any Westerner possibly could. And I think he had this fascination because, because of the nature of his questions. I never suspected him as a spy, but I also thought, you know, Bob Hansen was a strong, staunch conservative, a mm-hmm. Catholic who went to daily mass. Yeah. So you'd, you know, and I thought, well, only left wingers are spies. Well, no, 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 no. we're all vulnerable. We're all targeted, uh, or people like us anyway are all targeted, and and so nobody's immune. That was a good lesson right there. He what I love about this, that. This, hmm? Well, I was just going to say you you mentioned that uh, after in the aftermath of that, you ended up with all this classified material, and the FBI comes. You know, you, they're sort of interested in you, but they weren't that interested because they did. It took them a while to come get the stuff. But you had a laptop, and I, there's a line in the book where he said, "So you're the laptop guy." So you were you were Bob Hansen's laptop guy before a different laptop became more familiar. And I guess I'm just wondering, having been somebody who ended up with a laptop full of potentially classified information, if you if that colored the perspective by which you've seen the Hunter Biden laptop story. And you say, no, 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 that, that actually can be a real intelligence vulnerability because you've seen that happen in your own life. Or if you, if you saw that as more of like a political uh, lark and not something of national security concern. Well, this was one of the things that, that alerted me to the sloppiness of the FBI and, and in big Intel, I don't really dwell on these, the successes or the failures. There've been great successes and terrible failures. It's really more about, how critical theory and wokeness became to you know take ideological control, 
But the laptop issue was one that was really serious because Hansen had kept a server, you know, you know, we go back to Hillary Clinton, right? Well, this predates it. He yeah. kept a private server in his house behind his fireplace. Mm. And back then, mm. Netscape was the browser, and he had an, an encrypted Netscape browser. I was living abroad for a couple of years, and he was sending me things. He told me to download this encrypted browser from his server because you couldn't download them from abroad with a foreign IP address at the time. Then he was just gratuitously, hey, check a, take a look at this, sending me stuff that was – <laughs> extremely sensitive and and so i thought well the fbi might have the encrypted side on hansen's browser i have the decrypted side you know that should be of interest plus they should know exactly what he compromised so they can do damage assessments and shore up counterintelligence capabilities here or cover up you know help other people there who might need some cover and so i went to the fbi at, right after his arrest and as a journalist, I, I couldn't just give it to the FBI or else as a, as a journalist now, um, there's a, something called the shield law that pr- allows journalists to protect their sources by not having to reveal their sources to the FBI. So I wanted to make sure that my rights were protected under the shield law and I could not be f- compelled to provide my sources to the FBI whenever they wanted. So you do it through, a, there's a legal process for doing it. And I was working for a magazine with the Washington Times at the time. And we went to them six times to offer them the laptop and for me to sit down with their damage assessment team to understand the depth of certain things that Hansen had revealed to me, not to the Russians, but, you know, I don't, I don't have secure facilities. What's going to happen to it once I have it? So they sent agents to me on two occasions, but they didn't ask me questions about this, even though I then offered to them, I made reference to it and they never came for the laptop. So a few years later, and Peter, you would know some of the people who were at the counterintelligence conference in 2003 or four, and I met Paul Redmond, who was the CIA counterintelligence chief, great man, wonderful public servant. He was head of the Hanson damage assessment team. And I, so I told my story to him and he said, well, this is great. He, oh, he said, you're the guy with the laptop. So he knew. <laughs> I said, this is great, but FBI doesn't want to know. They shut down the damage assessment team because there was too much for them to bear and they didn't want to embarrass the Bureau any further. Yeah, well, that 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 is a shocking story. There are many others in this book. You know, there's so much discussion in the news, Eric and, and Mike, about uh, Intel, about the Intel chiefs, how they become politicized, how these institutions have gone from these wonderful, revered institutions that were not perfect 30, 40 years ago uh, to the state that they are today. Um, and if you want to know that story, I suggest that people pick up Big Intel. Mike, real quick in conclusion. So how do we fix this? You know, a lot of people say, well, look, we just need to elect a president and they, you need to just put a guy in charge of the CIA and everything will be fixed. That certainly is maybe part of the solution, but this is far, 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 far deeper than that. So how do you begin to root out this problem so we can respect these institutions the way that we once did? Well, they're, they're really bureaucracies instead of institutions. This is what Angelo mm-hmm. Cotabila, the great intelligence man, always said. These are yeah. simply bureaucracies. Don't be in awe of them. It's like the OSS in World War II. The war is over. Disband it. It's, it's been yeah. compromised anyway yeah. throughout by, by Stalin. Just disband it and start something new. So when, when Donald Trump came in before, he 
put in a new person at the top, but he didn't have an agenda for disbanding it or, or even repairing it. And he didn't have a team. Well, now he's, he's very much aware of the, of what should be done right now. So there's two things to, to answer your question. The first one starts with every citizen, every American citizen, because we all have a county sheriff and we all elect our county sheriffs, but it's sheriffs are not somebody we really pay much attention to when we go to vote. Sheriffs have extraordinary constitutional powers in their counties to hold federal authorities at bay hmm. and to, to govern how those are federal authorities, those federal authorities work in their counties and to make sure they don't abuse the citizens in those counties. So that's the first thing we have to address these concerns to every single sheriff and everyone running for sheriff in this election cycle to make sure that they're empowered make sure that they have public support. And if they're reluctant, make sure they have public pressure. And a lot of sheriffs will be reluctant because they think, hey, I'm just a county sheriff. Who am I to work against the FBI? You're not working against the FBI. You're working to protect the citizen. But they also get cool stuff like armored vehicles and tactical gear and training and everything from the FBI. And they don't want to jeopardize that, but they don't really need this stuff for the most part. So that's the first thing. Every citizen can have a tangible effect right in their own communities. The second one is to make sure that that a Trump transition team is properly set up and properly informed with an action plan, which I believe it's putting together, to make the changes that are necessary, not to just put new leaders in with the FBI, but the FBI, again, like the B says, it's a bureau, it's a bureaucracy, but it's just a brand and it's building off an old reputation. It's, it's become the Bud Light of law enforcement. <laughs> Do you really want to drink that anymore? Right? So, so meaning let's take the elements of the FBI that are important. Let's take the counterintelligence part and set it off as a separate counterintelligence service. The way George W. Bush had planned after nine 11 with some of our friends, Peter, uh, who, who had came up with yep. that idea, yep. a separate small account, strategic counterintelligence service, take the criminal branch of the FBI move it over to the U.S. Marshals Service, which is relatively scandal-free and com- very scandal-free compared to the other ones. It's had some problems, but that's our oldest law enforcement service that was created by the founders of our country. So let's move those functions over there with the FBI Academy and then train everybody on the crime-fighting side under the U.S. Marshals ethos and not the, the discredited FBI ethos. The same thing for cyber, move it apart. We don't need it alcohol, tobacco, and firearms, and an FBI section that does the same thing. Let's pull out the firearm section out of the FBI, move it over to ATF, and then deal with ATF later on. Point is just to break apart the constituent elements of the FBI, downsize positions where they need downsizing. So then you're abolishing positions, meaning this is the way to get rid of these unwanted federal employees. You abolish their positions. So abolish those positions. And then Put the FBI in the history books as the OSS was. Similar with CIA, it's bloated. You don't, you don't need secret intelligence for climate change and gender, <laughs> right? Well, but we do. So, terrific, so you divide clandestine service as one, one service to do covert operations and a separate intelligence collection and analytical service, which can be really downsized because a lot of the stuff that they're getting comes from open source anyway. And, and, and a lot of it is just useless anyway uh, for decision makers. So you downsize that a lot 
and you pare that back. Thing is, there's going to be a huge amount of yelling and screaming because a lot of the people in Washington, D.C. are making fortunes after their government careers by being government contractors and running companies that then do government contracting for intelligence. Well, it's the same reason they'll never simplify the tax code, right? There's way too many accounts to make way too much money <laughs> off of uh, that. Same same IRS, yeah. absolutely. Mike Waller, you are amazing guest. The book is terrific. Peter Schweitzer's mentioned it. I just want to say thank you for coming on. And I think you really do do an excellent job, a very informative job of tracing kind of the philosophical roots to the practical impact on our intelligence services today. So great work on the book. Yes, thank you, Mike, for joining us again. Encourage everybody to pick up a copy. And thank you to the audience, as always, for listening. Uh, we know your time is valuable. Uh, you can find more about the research we're doing here at thedrilldown.com. And you can, of course, find this podcast wherever fine podcasts are located. Until next time, thanks for joining us. 